hate to overly repeat myself, but yes, we are in this season of thanks, uh, the season of Advent, the coming of Christ, when the light of the world stepped down into darkness. And it's a season where we anticipate and we, we remember his coming the first time, but we anticipate and look forward to his coming once again. In years past, through the Advent season, I know we've looked at some of the prominent figures in the, the, involved in the first coming of Christ. This year, we are going to look at the quintessential Advent character, the person of John the Baptist, his work, his life, his mission, and his message. And we're going to see how he prepared the people for the first coming of Christ and how that mission and message can prepare us for the return of Christ. Now, of course, in history, John the Baptist was born only a few months before Jesus was born. But his mission and message started long before that. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a text from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40, a a text that all four of the Gospels refer to in reference to John the Baptist when they talk about who he was and where his message came from. It's Isaiah chapter 40. We'll read the first 11 verses. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, that can be found on page 712. The prophet Isaiah writes, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, as you heard, we start this season of Advent by lighting the candle of hope. Now, hope is one of those wonderful, rich words that we can celebrate. But if we're honest, it's also one of those tricky words. 
Because there's a lot of people who often live with hopelessness that identify more easily with the darkness of life than they do with the light that came. Doesn't take much to look around at our world and to see where the trajectory of our culture is going, to see all kinds of different awful trends come up and different destruction of the moral decay of our society. And we look at that and we say, where is this going to lead and where is this going to go? And as we see that moral decay enter into our families and into our culture, we can feel hopeless in this world. But of course, too, as soon as we examine our own hearts from time to time, and we think about those sins that we have confessed over and over again, and while we feel, felt the consequences of those sins destroy and wreck our lives, and, and yet once again... We are wrestling with and giving in to those same temptations. Because of our inability to change, we wonder, is there any hope out there? Or you think about those situations and circumstances in life that come our way. And it only feels like there's nothing we can do except lift up those concerns in prayer to God. And yet as fervently as we pray, as much as we lift them up to God, it doesn't seem like anything is happening and, and we feel hopeless. And in all of those situations, we ask those big and profound questions. God, where are you? God, have I done something that has forever ruined our relationship with you? And have, we, have I destroyed our relationship have you walked away from me and abandoned me forever? Is there hope? It's to those people, is to people who were asking those kinds of questions that Isaiah 40 was written to and addressing them. In fact, we see those questions laid out specifically later on in our chapter. In verse 27, the people ask, or it, it says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They were asking the questions, have God disregarded us? Are we hidden from him? Has he abandoned us forever? And they were asking those questions with pretty good cause. Once again, as we kind of celebrated in Thanksgiving, our God is a, a covenant God. And you go all the way back to after the Tower of Babel when nations were created and God established a special covenantal relationship with Abraham and his descendants. Saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And you will know of this because I will bless you with descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky or the sands on the shores. And I will bless you with a land where your people will dwell and live and prosper and be a light to the nations. And they had seen the people of Israel. So many of those promises become true. Abraham, at the time of Isaiah, had had more descendants than you could count. Innumerable in number. Although they had been in Egypt enslaved for a while, they had seen how God had rescued them and set them free from slavery with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. 
And how after he rescued them through the ten plagues, he led them and guided them through the wilderness, protecting and providing for them the whole entire way. And then he did, through his might and through his victory, allow them to reclaim the land, the very land he had promised to their ancestor Abraham. Where they were established and they were led by great kings, most notably David, who was a man after God's own heart. But all of those wonderful days were in the past when we get to the time of Isaiah. And when Isaiah comes on the scene, we didn't have one nation, but there were now two nations divided the people of Abraham. The Israel tribes, ten in the north and, and two tribes in the nation of Judah in the south. And neither one of those nations was doing well. Rather than being the light to the nations that they were supposed to be, they looked a lot like the other nations. Instead of living in devoted service to God, they chose to follow the gods of the nations and worship those idols, engaging in some of the most absolute horrible of those worship practices. Like the other nations, the rich in the community were trying to get richer and richer on the backs of the poorer in their community. And they were failing. While they might have been prospering financially, they were failing spiritually to be the people of God. And because of this failing, up to this point, the vast majority of the book of Isaiah, before what we read, is words of warning. Isaiah saying that God was not going to ignore their rebellion. God was not going to allow his covenant people to turn their back on him forever. That as he had promised long ago to Moses, if they were not faithful in the land, they would one day be driven from that land as a punishment for their rebellion. So the call was to repent, to turn back to God, to reject the idols of the nations, and to truly serve the Lord like they were supposed to. But the people didn't heed those warnings that led up to this point. And eventually God was faithful to his promise to judge them. It started first with the northern nation of Israel when in 722 BC the Assyrians came and conquered their capital. And those that survived the battles were sent off into exile, spread throughout the land of Assyria to basically destroy their culture and their identity as a people. And then in 586 BC, the southern tribes of Judah were also conquered by the people of Babylon who treated them the same way, who destroyed their palace, who destroyed the temple of God, who killed many of the people and sent the majority of the rest throughout the kingdom of Babylon. And like earlier, the prophet Ezekiel had said, the glory of the Lord which had descended upon the tabernacle and had guided the people through the wilderness who had come to the temple when it was dedicated by Solomon. Ezekiel saw that glory of the Lord arise from the temple and depart from it. And so in exile, the question that was asked for a long time was, has God abandoned us forever? Have we in our sin ruined that covenant relationship is any hope for a nation, for us to prosper in this land, for God to use us as a light to the world, has that all gone and disappeared? And again, to those very people, 
Isaiah gives these incredible words of comfort. Just as God had promised that there would be judgment for sin, he also promised that there was going to be a time of restoration. And he says in verses 1 and 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That great word of comfort is that the time of punishment was over. That God's wrath had been satisfied and that he was going to continue to work with them and he would restore and he would rebuild. And that's the word of the voice that is sent to cry. To cry to the people saying, prepare the way of the Lord. That the people of Israel and Judah would return to this land once again. That God himself in his glory was going to return to this land once again. Every obstacle, every high mountain, every low valley images that were symbolic of the rough terrain that you had to go through when you were approaching Jerusalem, that all of that would be leveled and the way there would be made easy because God was coming, because the people would return and the nation would be reestablished. And we know this is going to happen long before it did, because as it says in verse five, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that's no small thing. In verses six through eight, there's another voice crying out. It's crying out, reminding people of their mortality. It's connecting us to to grass and flowers, saying that as as grass grows and then fades and, and falls, and as flowers bloom and blossom and then are destroyed, that our lives are like that. That humans come and humans go. We are not dependable and our span on this earth is short. But even though generation after generation will pass, the promise is that God's word will stand forever. As we celebrate it on Thanksgiving, our God is good and faithful. When he makes a promise, he does keep those promises. And so despite the failings of the people in the past, despite the sufferings they had to go through in order to learn the consequences of their rebellion against God, God would never abandon them. He had made a promise to be their God, that they would be his people, and he still was calling them by that name. Therefore, the word of hope could be proclaimed with boldness. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes. He comes as a conquering king with his treasures to share. He comes as a gentle shepherd To gather, to nurture, and to love his people. It was going to be a dark time. A time where people were asking some very difficult questions. But the promise of God was that they would not and were not abandoned. And that God is and would always be faithful. Fast forward then in history a couple of hundred years. Until just before the coming of Christ. And it was another dark time in the history of Israel. Again, they had seen much of the promises of Isaiah be fulfilled. The people did return to the land. The temple was rebuilt. 
The wall around Jerusalem was rebuilt, and they were, they could call themselves a nation once again. But they were a nation that was now under the greater authority of the Roman Empire. And the king that sat on the throne was really just a puppet king assigned by the Roman emperor to try to keep peace among these Jewish people. But what was more is no prophet had been in the land. No word from God had been heard for for hundreds of years now. And they were still waiting Waiting for more promises of God to be fulfilled. Most notably, waiting for that great king in the line of David that would come and would reestablish the throne. That would make Israel the great nation that they thought it should be. And while they waited, they did different things. Some tried to force God's hand through their service. And through their dedication to the law, these are people like the Pharisees who thought, well, if we as a nation and we as people are holy enough, if we just dedicate ourselves entirely to the law and are good enough, then God will come in the Savior. Others ignored the spiritual aspect and focused more on the political Well, they said, well, if we're going to be a great nation, we have to find good leaders and and we've got to fight against the Romans. We've got to take up the sword and we've got to battle so that we can reestablish the greatness of who we are as a people. Others eager to find a Messiah were hunting after and clinging to anybody who looked like a viable candidate. And before Jesus showed up, there were many people who, who people lifted up and elevated and thought maybe this is the Messiah, and they they followed after them, only to ultimately be disappointed. And others just gave up. They thought that the promises were long ago and were no longer relevant to them, and so they quit. And they figured, well, God has probably forgotten us, abandoned us forever. And yet to those people, all of a sudden on the scene comes this man, John the Baptist, And he brings the very same word of hope from Isaiah 40, which is why he's identified with that text. And he goes into the wilderness and he cries out to the people saying that God has not abandoned you. He has not forgotten his promises. And that indeed the Lord is coming in a whole new and unexpected way. And as he proclaimed, exactly it happened. Jesus, the incarnate word of God, comes to his people. The Lord takes on flesh, humbling himself, becoming a servant. And he goes all the way to the cross where he dies for their sins. He restores the relationship broken with God. He pays for their iniquity, declaring that their war is over. And in his resurrection, he declares the victory Not against the political enemies, but against Satan and death and hell. And John prepared his way. John declared, get ready, because God is active. God has not forgotten his promises. And indeed, the Lord is returning. And he is acting. And that's a great word of hope that we're going to see and explore as we watch John the Baptist in his ministry. Then ultimately then, 
We fast forward in history a couple of other several hundred years. And we again find ourselves in times that can be dark. Going all the way back to my opening illustration, we do look at our world. We do look at ourselves. We do pray fervently during times of great struggle. And we continue to ask, where is God? I thought he was supposed to be coming back. Has the promise been unfulfilled? Has God abandoned us? Have we lost our way forever? And while we wait, we respond in different ways. Some try to force God's hand. Well, if if we're just good enough people, and if we we try to be holy enough, and if we tell enough people about Jesus, and if we work to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, well, then maybe God will come back and he will act. Others worry less about our spiritual lives, and they focus more on the political. Well, if we want to be a good nation, we have to elect good leaders and we have to fight for the values of our community. And that's where we focus our attention on on politics and on raising up leaders that are going to make sure that our nation stays the nation that we want it to be. And others, they look for hope in all other areas and they cling to the idols of this world to appease our concern and our longing. And of course, there are many who give up hope along the way, who figure that the promises that Jesus made to return one day were promises that were made now thousands of years ago. Why are we still waiting? We've been forgotten. Those promises are not going to come true. Which is why, again, this morning, we have to hear those same words of hope from Isaiah 40. Those words of comfort. Those words of hope. Those words of comfort and the words of hope is proclaimed in this baptism to both Jackson and to Tate. The promises as we highlighted that God is a God who still makes promises. And by evidence of the lives of so many sitting here this morning, God is faithful to those promises. And as Jackson and Tate grow in their lives, knowing and receiving those promises, it'll make all of the difference to them. That when they wander... When they wonder if God loves them or in their sin, if they worry that God is, has ru- they've ruined their relationship with God forever and there is no opportunity to return, they can know that his promises were sealed to them and that there is hope and comfort. That because of what Jesus has done for them, not because of what they have done, that nothing will separate them from the love of God. And that is also why this word from Isaiah 40 is a text I often go to at times of loss and at funeral services. Because then, when life is over, we need to hear those words that our warfare is done. That our iniquity has been paid for. And that the Lord has given us double for all our sins. But not to us. But to Christ. That when Christ... Hung on that cross, he bore the wrath against all of our sins. 
And therefore, our iniquity has been pardoned, and we are right with God, and therefore, we can know with absolute certainty that even death will never separate us from his love. And we can live in the great comfort, that great hope, that because of the victory of Christ over death, we will and do forever belong to him. That death itself is not strong enough to break his great promises. What a great word of hope. What a wonderful way to start this Advent season as we think about and reflect again on the faithfulness of our God, making and always keeping his promises. Even in the darkest of days, may we cling to that hope that our God in Christ is faithful. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we begin with a word of confession. That word being that because of our sin and our rebellion against you and all of the wrongs that we have committed and continually commit against you, what we deserve is for you to abandon us, to reject us. For we have voided our relationship with you because of our actions. But that's why we are so thankful that it's not dependent upon us. But in the promises of Jesus Christ, signed and sealed in our baptisms, in the hope that we have as we surrender our lives to him in faith, that we can know that you loved us so much that he is the one who has forgiven all of our sins, restored our relationship with you. And because of that, no matter what is going on in our world or in our hearts, we have hope. Of course, Lord, may that hope not Allow us to abuse your grace, but we pray that we would celebrate that grace in lives of service and love, seeking to point others, just as John the Baptist did, to you, pointing them to where they can find true hope for forgiveness for their sins and peace because of what you've done for us. Thank you for those incredible gifts. And we pray this in the great name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.